0: Hey, good morning. I'm so glad to be back. Thanks to Dr. David Capes for filling in last Sunday. Uh, I've had, uh, I I really appreciate the positive emails. Those of you um, who email me and say, hey, he did great, don't bother coming back. (laughs) There are nicer ways to say it than that. Uh, I got a chance to watch uh, what Dr. Capes did, and it it was a great lesson. I really appreciated it. Uh, You know, I look at the prophets, and actually a good bit of scripture, with a picture in my mind. It's a picture of a Swiss Army knife. And the reason why, if you've ever, I'm sure everybody in here is familiar with a Swiss Army knife. I mean, you get all the little different, you can get screwdrivers, you can get scissors, tweezers, toothpick. Uh, An MRI machine on the really good ones. Uh, You've got, uh, you know, uh, um, any number of different tools that are on those things. And they're all folded up into one little pocket knife. And, And the Swiss, I guess, are just ultra efficient. But I have news for you. God is the king of efficiency. And you see it in so many different ways, but you certainly see it in Scripture. If you think about Scripture, think about the Bible for a moment. And I'm excited about our series that we'll be starting on studying the Bible. But think about this. Here is a book that is actually a collection of 66 different books written over a thousand years in time to a host of different audiences in a host of different cultures and somehow God has put this bible together to be scripture for all people for all time so we can read this as people of 2023 Or we can read this as people of whatever day, age, variety we are. We can read it in English as it's been translated here. You can read it in a host of other languages where it's been translated. And throughout, you're going to find a message that speaks to you today. But the same thing could have been said... If you had asked a Navajo Native American in 1200 to read the Bible in Navajo, they'd have found things that spoke to them out of this book. You could ask someone in Zechariah's day to hear the words of prophecy that became the book of Zechariah. And they would hear a message that applied to them that day. And I was thinking about this. (coughs) And I'm sorry. I'm still fighting a cold. And it violates rule 101 of public speaking. To speak with something in your mouth. But if I don't keep something in my mouth, I'm not going to be speaking very long. (laughs) I was thinking about this when David was teaching On the messianic prophecies out of Zechariah. Because those messianic prophecies are like a Swiss army knife. And they apply in so many different ways. Think about Exodus chapter 16. In Exodus chapter 16, the people have left Israel. I mean left Egypt. The, 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 the Hebrews have, have fled. they've gone through the, the Red Sea that Moses uh, uh, was used by God to divide. They're in the wilderness, they're hungry, they're grumbling, and they're complaining. Where's the food? God says, don't panic. I'm going to take care of their needs." And every morning when they wake up, like dew on the ground, there's going to be this manna from heaven. Bread. Actually, not bread, but like a bread. It's probably a carbohydrate. They used it to make banana bread. <laughs> I won't go through the whole litany of manna jokes because there's manna and there's a whole bunch of others. But um, they, they, they've got the manna. And it speaks to them, and it spoke a message not only of God's provision. It spoke to the wasting of our grumbling. It also spoke to daily reliance upon God, because he said, don't gather up more than one day, it's going to get smelly and moldy. You rely upon, you know, like, give us this day our daily bread. See, God's an efficiency God. He could have just said pray, give us this year our daily bread, and then you're one done. You don't have to do it again until next year. But he wants us to rely on him every day. And that's a lesson. And so you can look at Exodus chapter 16, and you can get all of that lesson. But now, look at something else. Don't just be one of the Hebrews that, that learns the lesson of, <coughs> of Exodus 16. Flip over to John chapter 6, and in John chapter 6, Jesus is using the manna story to explain how he's the bread of life, and that God gave manna, but the real bread of life is coming from God that's going to do so much more than take care of your food for a day. And, and so you've got that same prophecy, that, that same event, that same passage of scripture that, that takes on a whole new meaning as Jesus explains it. And God didn't have to write a couple of different ones. I mean, he's able to use the same thing over and over because God knows the future and the future to him is the same as the past. I think that's important for us as we look at the Minor Prophets. I think it's important to us as we pull Zechariah off the shelf and we look at Zechariah. Now, Zechariah, as I pointed out last week, two weeks ago, and Capes was in here, so he has no excuse for not paying attention. Kathy, I'm glad you're here. You can keep him awake, elbow him if he starts nodding. I put copyright... 518 B.C., but I believe I said, it's probably some of it, It's not all of it. And he did that polite, Mark had this, and I'll just let it slide because it's not totally accurate, response last Sunday, realizing I get the last word today. So, parch, 518 B.C. I need to be more accurate, as my professor taught me last week. But he did agree, this is an amazing book. Now, I had Dr. Capes take the passages that are peculiarly messianic. And that doesn't mean that they don't have other applications. It's a Swiss Army knife. But they were clearly messianic. And look at those. And that was good. (coughs) Mm. Um, I don't know what this gunk is I have, but you don't want it. I don't think it's contagious or I wouldn't have come here. I'd have had Capes teach today too. Um, but I want you to have a chance to study these passages in a way that helps us understand them. I got an email from Lorraine this week. She sent me a picture of her morning coffee cup. This is not it. Hers was like twice this size. (laughs) She said, this is what I do every morning. And she'll shoot me an email and tell me about her Bible study and a song for the day. And I love that. And we're going to be talking about how to study the Bible. But a little glimpse of it we get today. Because here's what we're going to do today. Basically three things. Today we're going to read a passage out of Zechariah then we're going to understand the passage, and then we're going to apply the passage. Now, when we get to this summer series and we're studying about how to use the Bible, what we're really doing is working on this second era, and we're going to really try to figure out how do we better understand Scripture, and there's a lot that can be done on that, and it's pretty exciting stuff. But today what we're going to do is basically read, understand, and apply as we work through some of Zechariah. My problem is there's too much stuff in Zechariah for me to finish it today. So if I think you're bored and I'm bored, we'll just skip the rest of it. If not, we'll come back and finish it up next week. But let's go back. I had looked at Zechariah 1. Let's go into Zechariah 2 now. Look at this passage. Well, Zechariah, let me tell you this. He's got visions. Vision after vision after vision after vision. These are a bunch of visions uh, in, in this book. But he says, I will be to her, this is God talking. I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. Now, that's an interesting passage, and we can read that passage, but if we want to understand it, we need to put it into the context of the vision. Part of the story of Zechariah is the historical context of the Israelites, the Jews actually, returning from Babylonian captivity. Not all of them, a good bit of them just were happy in Babylon and stayed there, but a number returned And you know what happened when they returned, don't you? Um, Mom's not here today. But if you talk to mom about Lubbock, Texas, you will find out there's no crime there. Everybody's happy. The children all test above average on their test scores. There is joy abounding, and uh, no no people out of work. Unemployment is zero in Lubbock, and everybody loves their job. Families live forever. There are doctors just because they want to have nice people there, but nobody gets sick. And that's the way of Lubbock, when you're talking to my mom. Now... The Jews left Jerusalem when the Babylonians captured them and they have to walk 900 miles. And they only carry what they can take with them that wasn't destroyed. And their lives have been a wreck. And they're at the end of a war and at the end of a siege. And they're destitute. And they're being driven Not in a car or automobile sense. And they're depressed and sad. And you know those parents were telling those kids and grandkids how great Jerusalem was in its day. It was the Lubbock, Texas of the Middle East. It was everything it could be. So... 60, 70, 80 years later, the Jews start coming back. And do they find everything so hunky-dory that mom and dad said it would be? Not even close. The temple's been destroyed. No walls around the city. The homes have been ransacked and destroyed. Locals have grabbed rocks that were useful and and co-opted them for their own use. The vineyards, gone, weeded over, untended. The fields, weeded out. It's not a happy place. And so into this environment, the people are trying to put it back together. But there are marauders that come in at night and destroy what they do during the day. And the people feel helpless. And God speaks out and says, I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. Naum Adonai. Naum is not the normal word for says. Naum Translated declares is a Hebrew word that's used mainly by the prophets. I think Zechariah uses it twenty times because it's it's not just saying, it's making a prophetic proclamation, like an oracle, like, I see this, I'm declaring this because it's going to happen. I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. That promise that God makes there is one that should mean something to God's people in that day and mean something to us today. Because we may not experience the issues that they experienced But I can guarantee you there's not anybody who lives long enough whose life won't be wrecked in one way, shape, form, or fashion. And we all need to know that there is a God who is greater than the wreck that is in our life. We all need to know that God declares, says prophetically, He's going to be a wall of fire around us and be the glory in the middle of us. I wish he'd hurry. (laughs) Fair. And it's fair for you to tell him that. But he's going to do it on his timing, not yours. And Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, but Jesus still is... Brutally crucified. But there's Easter Sunday. There is resurrection day and Jesus will come again. So when I read a passage like this and I begin to understand it in its original context, I now can start applying it to me. And I have a question for you. You don't answer this out loud. How's your self-esteem today? Do you feel like a million bucks? Or do you feel like a dollar ninety-five? Or do you feel like you're in debt? (laughs) Your self-esteem is so low, you'd have to borrow money to break even. I want to tell you that God is looking to be your protection. God is looking to take care of you. And that should change all of our self-esteem. If we truly begin to understand that God wants to encamp around you as a wall of fire and put his glory in your midst... Now you say, but that's not, that passage is talking about Jerusalem and and the Jews. Yes, it is. But I don't think it's an unfair extrapolation because it's a very biblical concept. This is what God wants to do. Now I can ask you this question, or you may ask this question. Why would God want to do that for me? Why would God want to protect me? I'm not worth it. I have poor self-esteem, Mark, remember? Keep reading Zechariah. Zechariah 2, verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, and here it's Amar, which is the typical word for say. Thus says the Lord of hosts, After his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. He who touches you, the chosen of God, touches the apple of his eye. Bataz, translated apple. It's not really used in the Old Testament. The Septuagint Translators do it as the pupil, and that seems to be what it is. It's the the pupil of your eye. But I mean, apple of your eye. It's a pretty good translation, right? Can we get a little volume on the thank you? you have- That for a minute. The apple of God's eye? I mean, God cares about you enough to call you the apple of his eye? I don't know where your self esteem is, but I know where your self esteem should be. You may not be the most popular in school. You're the apple of God's eye. You may not have that ability to attract someone special in your life. Oh, yes, you do. You're the apple of God's eye. You may feel alone and lonely. You're the apple of God's eye. You may feel... Now, some of you are going to say, yeah, but look, I've made a wreck of my life. It's not just a wrecks happen. I'm not what I ought to be. See, and, and that's the problem. Someone is accusing you in your own head and saying, but you fail God miserably. You're like the Jews that got sent off to captivity because you're not faithful. That accusation is talked about in Zechariah 3. Then it's a new vision. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of Yahweh, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. This is um, a very significant passage of Scripture as it references Satan. Satan, work on on this. Even if you don't know Hebrew, this is going to be like one of those picture challenges they gave us in school where you have to find eight things that are different between two pictures that look like they're all identical, right? You remember those where you had to count the window panes because it was always... I had the window panes messed up. We're reading Hebrew right to left. And this is just the Hebrew va sound, which means and. This is a Hebrew ha sound, which means the. So and the. And this is, look at that. It looks like a W sort of, doesn't it? With a little A underneath it and a dot over the edge. That's a sin, like sin, but it doesn't mean sin. That's just the name of the letter. It's a s-s-sin sound. And this, A, means ah. So it's sa. And this letter is actually a a, a t. A, it's a T. Excuse me, a top. It is, it is the T-A sound. Sa, ta, and that's an N when it's at the end of a letter. I mean, end of a word. S a, t a. In. what's that spell Satan Satan is a Hebrew word it says and the Satan standing at his right fist right hand Two. this Lamed means to and look at this word right here look at these what do you see The only difference is that letter, and that's because it's not at the end of the word. And then it's got this at the end, which means him. But that's the same letter. So Satan is standing at his right hand to Satan him. Does that make sense? The word Satan means accuse. So we get Satan here translated because it says Satan, but it could also say, and the accuser standing at his right hand to accuse him. Or it could say, and Satan standing at his right hand to Satan him. But they probably translated it best. So yeah, you may be saying, but wait a minute. I'm a pathetic person. I've swept things under the rug nobody knows about. I've got skeletons in my closet that could scare anyone if I let them see them. Well, I have news for you. Satan has an ability to accuse you and I. Now, It's really interesting. Greg and I were talking about how often, and David made reference to this last week, how often Zechariah is quoted in the book of Revelation. And it is quoted a lot. There's a passage in Revelation 12 that starts with verse 7. Verse 10 is going to be the key verse, but let's get the warm up here. It's the story of the woman and the dragon. Miss Carolyn, I'm not going to call you up here because you're not here today. David scared you off calling you up last week. Look at this. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. (laughs) Thank you. Pastor Jarrett told me that it takes a woman who has been through the pains of childbirth to understand what it's like to be a man with a cold. (laughs) She was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. I'm feeling it. And another sign appeared in heaven. And Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast him to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, she might devour it. Keeps going. Get to verse 7. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. There was no longer any place for him in heaven. And the great dragon who was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil. And Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation And the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. Who accuses them day and night before God. It's a reference back to Zechariah. The accuser of the brethren. Accusing them before God. Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Don't get me wrong. God's Holy Spirit will also convict us of sin. But there's a difference between a conviction of sin that brings us to Jesus and his forgiveness And a guilt trip laid on us to chain and weigh us down after we've given our lives to Jesus. This is accusing the brethren before God. And Satan has no business accusing the brethren because we've been forgiven. And if you're on a guilt trip, don't get me wrong. You may have some things in your life you need to work out. But that does not diminish God's love for you. That does not diminish his desire to protect you and to help you work through those things. We'll get to more of that in in a moment. But we got to pause for a minute and recognize that the Bible teaches that Satan is very real. Revelation, you know, I, I heard an Old Testament fellow once talking about, and, and I asked him, I said, do you believe in a, a real Satan? And, and he said, no. And my immediate reaction was, you need to not just read the Old Testament, you need to read what the New Testament says about the Old Testament. Because you can't take this passage and turn it into some psychological accusation that's happening just in your head if you read the revelation passage that quotes it he's the deceiver of the world he's the ancient serpent he was in the garden and our big problem is a lot of us just don't even believe he exists are you familiar with keith green you remember his song satan's boast listen to a minute Is you know I'm trying people just like flies, they like what they hear. I'm taking em power by the hour, they're falling by You know, it's getting very simple now. So you no one believes in me anymore. He goes on to say, I used to have to sneak around, but now I just walk in the door. It's getting very easy now because no one believes in me anymore. There is someone out there trying to get your train off the tracks. There is someone out there who's been defeated by Christ at Calvary, but he hadn't quit because misery loves company. And he's going to drag you with him. And he wants to make you miserable. He wants to rob you of joy. Wanda and I were talking before class about people today who just need to hear a message of joy. Because the enemy is trying to rob them of joy. Can you imagine if you're walking around burdened by these things in your life? This low self-esteem and you just don't feel worthy of the love of God. Can you imagine how different you would live if you understood that he has removed your shame and your guilt and cast it as far away as the east is from the west. So there's a problem of Satan. And you may say, but it's true, look, I've made a mess of things. Well, Zechariah's not numb to this. Look, now is standing before the angel and he's clothed with filthy garments. <laughs> that word "filthy" um, is uh, Zoa. It's in a, a dual form here, but it's um, or a plural form it may not be dual. It doesn't have a yod. Yeah, it, no. Nah, it's plural. anyway. That word can be translated. Say what's a polite way to say this. Excrement. He's got, see, we've been doing some grandparent duty. My daughter Gracie would say, he had a blowout and it got all over his clothes. My daughter can tell you what garments are that have been made filthy by Zoa. Now, it's not only translated excrement. It can also be translated vomit. So, yeah, Satan's accusing Joshua, and Joshua's standing there, and Joshua's got garment and excrement all over his clothes as he stands next to a pure God as a high priest who's supposed to be representing the people. So, yeah, he made a mess of things. Do you know what? God is the ultimate cleaner. You don't have a spot he can't get out. And the nice thing about it is, is your clothes are so shot. When you come to Jesus, what he does is he just says, "Eh, we're burning those clothes. (laughs) And I'm going to clothe you. With the righteousness of Jesus. And Paul will say that in Galatians. He'll use that word. He'll say, as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Like, like it's a Greek for putting on clothes. We're clothed in his righteousness. So Zechariah continues. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the vomit, excremented garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I've taken your iniquity, your sin, away from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? That's the gospel in Zechariah before we even get to the Messianic prophecies. Although, in fairness, you did mention Zechariah 2.10, which is an early Messianic. But before we get to the loaded ones, and if you did not hear David Capes' lesson last week, you must log on and listen to it. It was amazing. But now that we've got this, I want you to back up and I want you to look at one of the passages that David talked about last week, Zechariah 2.10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. I will dwell in your midst, declares Naum. That's an oracle. That's a prophetic promise. I will dwell in your midst declares the Lord so sing and rejoice see if we understand what we have in God we have a reason for joy we've got a reason to sing we've got a reason to be happy we've got a reason for self-esteem And not because we earned it. Because he took our vomit clothes off of us and gave us the righteousness of Jesus. Say, well, yeah, but i am keep vomiting on myself. That's okay because you're a work in progress. The key to that is, be a work in progress. Don't be satisfied vomiting all over yourself. Get potty trained. But I've got to tell you something. Like so much of life, there are two sides even to this coin. I mean, God says sing. He says rejoice. I get that. But look what else he says. Be silent. All flesh, call us are. Before the Lord. For he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. (laughs) I love Hebrew. He has roused himself. Four letters in Hebrew. Boom, 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 boom. That says, he has roused himself. (laughs) It's... uh, um, it's in what's called the nithal form, which can either be passive, but in this sense is reflexive. If you don't follow Hebrew, doesn't matter, but I've got Noel and some others in here who are good Hebrew students, and this is a nifal, It's but it's a reflexive nithal. God has roused himself. He's stirred himself up over this. God is getting up and getting ready to move in your life. And that's something that is worth being quiet about. Paul says it this way. Paul says, God, well, let's take a step back. We're in Philippians. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because, for God is at work in you, both to for His will and for His work, that is for His good pleasure. For the good of his kingdom. For the good of you. For that's where he takes his delight. So you're the apple of God's eye. And God's at work in you. And God wants to clean you up. And if we stay in Zechariah next week, we'll go through some of the lists where he says, here's how I'm going to do it. And i will got some of them here as points for home. But God wants you to understand and grasp a love for you that's deeper than the oceans, wider than the sky, higher than the mountains. He's got an unconditional love for you, not based on you earning it or being good enough and keeping yourself vomit free. He's got it based on who he is and how he's got plans for you. He's going to put his glory in the midst of you. Sing and rejoice. And also just sit back and go, Has. Hebrew word for silent. Has. Shh. Hold on. God's moving. All right, let's take a moment and look at some points for home. I'm going to base them off that Philippians passage with a little bit of change. First, God is at work in you. He is at work in you. Look at this passage from Zechariah 4, 6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is one of the ones building here, trying to rebuild Jerusalem, not by might, not by power, But by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, you are working, but it's going to get done because God's working. That passage starts out with a vision with these lampstands with these big bowls and the lamps are both symbolic of what needs to be in the temple. But the oil and the lamps are symbolic of the spirit of God. And they're put between olive trees. Olive oil was the oil that was used in the lamps. You got like the trees right there. This is a vision. This is God supplying the needs. Now you can't just sit back and leave all the driving to him. Zerubbabel's got to be working. But it's God's work. And God's spirit is the one that will see it done. And it's no different with you and me. We, we've, we've, we do struggle against unseen powers and principalities. This is a struggle in life. And we, I was, um. where was I? I don't know where I was. I've been everywhere. I got, watch that Johnny Cash song. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere. Um, I was somewhere this week. And I was driving to the airport. And I saw this lady running. Like out running for exercise, not being chased. And she had skinned both of her knees and blood was just running down her knees. She'd clearly fallen. And she's still running. I thought, I don't want to be that, but I want to be that. Look, we're going to fall. We're going to skin our knees. But what God's saying is, is he's at work in you. And by his spirit, you will have what you don't have your own power and your own might to get. So God's at work in you, but God's also at work in the world. So those things outside of you that are plaguing you, that are messing things up, where everything is not the Lubbock it was meant to be. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you'll become a plain. God will transform the landscape so that you can do what God wants you to do with your life. God will transform a mountain into a plane if that's what it takes for you to achieve what he wants you to achieve, which is growing closer to him and greater in reflecting his holiness. So if God's at work in you, and if God's at work in this world, what response do we have but... To get to work with God. Zechariah 4.9 The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands also shall complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. You know, God could have built the temple like this. Rebuilt the temple. He could have said... Let there be a temple. And there would have been a temple. God could have said, I'm going to time transport Bill Gudike and all of the heavy equipment from the Lanier Library work back to the temple. And we're just going to build it in a week or a month or a year. But that's not the way God did it. And God is the efficiency God. But the goal for God was not at the end of the day to have a stone temple. The goal for God at the end of the day was to make sure everybody knew that Zechariah was speaking the word of the Lord. Because as they knew that, they knew it was scripture. All of those messianic promises... That David talked about last week were in there because they knew that it was the word of the Lord. It had come true. These are important things and God does them in his time. But God doesn't have you out there on an island all by yourself. I love this aspect of the minor prophets. And um, I, I, I think I the lessons of, of Zechariah all rooted in that name, as David reminded us, that God remembers. He's going to take action because you are the apple of his eye. Let me bless you in the name of Jesus. Father, in the name of Jesus, I do proclaim the reality of your blessing. on your people. And Father, in the name of Jesus, and by that I mean by his death, burial, and resurrection and the power of the deeds that he has wrought on our behalf for eternity's sake, I declare that you will help those hearing this message understand the reality of your love. That you will disarm the accuser that you will show the clean clothes, the pure vestments that you have for your people so that we rightly stand before you clothed in the righteousness of Christ alone. This is our prayer. This is our plea. And this is our proclamation by the blood of Jesus, the resurrected Lord. Amen.